Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hi, listeners. We're sitting in Louise's study. We've got lots of stacks of books around us. And although we usually have cups of tea today, we're on the ice cold water (laughs) because it's extremely weird weather. We're in the middle of electrical storms and it's muggy and humid and way too hot for cups of tea today. Yes. But we hope you'll have a cup of tea and join us because we're going to discuss a writer that we both really love. Before we start, though, we do want to welcome our new listeners. Yes, absolutely. We found the source of our lovely spike in listeners in the last episode, and we're so grateful to the Currently Reading podcast and Meredith and Katie for recommending us. I'll talk a little bit more about Currently Reading later on, but we're just so happy to have so many lovely new American listeners. And very generous of them. Yeah, it was so generous of them. Many of the listeners have left us messages on our Diving In podcast Instagram account and let us know that they heard about us through uh, Meredith and Katie. So we're really chuffed to have you here. And in fact, we're in the funny position at the moment where we have almost more or almost equal numbers of American and Australian. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The changes have changed. Yes, fabulous. <laughs> yeah. So last episode, we discussed lots of new releases. Today we're going in the completely opposite direction and we're discussing books that have been around for decades. This episode is one that I've been looking forward to as we're talking about one of my absolute favourite writers, Nancy Mitford. Nancy Mitford was born in 1904. She was the eldest of seven children and six of them were girls, all of whom became famous in the 20th century for a variety of different reasons. Nancy wrote eight novels and several biographies. She wrote some social commentary. She wrote about the British class system. She wrote a play and she translated books as Mm. well. And she was lucky enough to be one of those writers who enjoyed enormous success in her own lifetime, which is rather lovely. Doesn't happen to everyone. No. She had no real education to speak of other than a governess who taught yeah. them, the girls to yeah. read and write. I think she had one term at a school in London, the Francis Holland School. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I mean, that's what I've read in one biography. Was that but the art school, though? It's a small oh. sort of prep school in Kensington, and I think she literally had eight weeks there. Oh, okay. I think Sydney relented and allowed okay. her to go. Because all of them did at various yes. times have the odd put pressure and, yes. and desperately want to go to school. Yes. Yeah. And one or two did do the odd turn. Yeah, and I think it was the Unity same. Unity got kicked out of yes, two, she did. She two did. schools. But it's a remarkable achievement when you consider the how little they were educated. And how she has that command of language yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. She's most famous for her Radlett family series, Mm. which are the ones we're going to discuss today. There are sort of four books in the series, although one of them, The Blessing, is more of a sidestep with more 
peripheral characters mm. in play in that one and some of these Radlett characters are just sort of tangential to the plot. These books are largely based on Nancy's very eccentric and famous family, the Freeman Mitfords, mm-hmm. which were headed up by her father, David Freeman Mitford, who was Lord Reedsdale, and he was a true character in every sense of the word. Yeah. And he's so beautifully drawn in the fictitious Uncle Matthew And Uncle Matthew's wife in the books, the very vague and beautiful Aunt Sadie, is based on Nancy's mother, Sydney Mitford. Nancy was writing about the aristocracy in the 20th century at a time when she could see that everything was changing and the world was never going to be the same again. No, absolutely. Really pivotal time in history, wasn't it? Yeah. And the books are very much of their time and they would not be as well received if they were written today. The characters are all white, wealthy, privileged, they have a very narrow worldview. But if you can accept all of that and that aspect of the books, they are very beautifully written and funny and charming. Mm. So the first one that I'm going to talk about is The Pursuit of Love. It's the first in the series and it's a wonderful story. It's narrated by Fanny. I don't think we ever find out Fanny's surname, do we? We know she's the daughter of a lord. Who's in Mexico yeah, or Spain, he's disappeared. is he? Yeah. So she's a cousin to the Radlett family and Fanny is telling the story of Linda Radlett, who is the second born of the seven Radlett children in the books and she's the same age as Fanny and she's her sort of particular friend. Mm. And the Radlets live in Alkenley, which is a grand house with servants and a chauffeur and a home farm and tenants. And although they have governesses and they speak fluent French, the girls have no formal education. Mm. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Mm. The boys go off to Eton and in the novels she's changed the gender of the seven children yes. so there's more boys. So the boys all go off to Eton and do get an education. But the girls are just pretty much left to their own devices with not much more than an extensive mm. library. And Fanny, as the narrator, does go to school and then she visits Alcon Lee in all her school holidays. And Fanny is really the most normal and well-balanced person in the whole family, which makes her a great narrator. It does, She's sort of like the straight guy, isn't she? Yeah, she she is. So Fanny's mother had her at 19 and then left her to be raised by another aunt. And Fanny's mother is infamous in the family as the bolter. And they call her that to her face. Yes. She knows she's the bolter. She's always bolting out of one marriage and into the next. And she's proud of being she's, a bolter. She just accepts what she is, I suppose. So when the book opens, The Pursuit of Love opens, I think she's on to her about her fourth husband and she's rarely seen. And Fanny's father similarly has gone on to have mm. several more wives, all much older women, and he rarely makes an appearance either except to send um, expensive Christmas presents and birthday presents to Fanny. So the arc of the story is the childhood and then the early life of Linda Radlett as seen through the eyes of Fanny. And because it's a world of privilege that was coming to an end in many ways, the dynamics of that family life at Alconley, the debutante seasons, the hunting and the eccentric family members make it quite a fascinating story. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it's nothing like our lives. No. It's very hard for us to relate mm. to some of it. And there was a huge appetite for it when it was published in 1945 in the UK and elsewhere, I gather. So here there are several young girls not going to school with too much time on their hands, all expected to marry well and not allowed to pursue any sort of career. No. 
and that she, you get this real sheer sense of boredom, don't Complete you? Complete boredom. So, so, so anything that's even remotely dramatic or yeah. slightly interesting assumes a whole new... It gets elevated into yeah. a way yeah. too big a thing. Yeah. And they live that very closeted existence. They, you know, they know nothing about anything really mm. and all their energy goes into dreaming about who they might marry. And then they have this secret society called the Hons. I don't really know how to pronounce that because I, in Jessica Mitford's book, she says it's more to do with hens. So yes. you, you pronounce the yes. H. Hons. And they meet in a big airing cupboard at the top of the house and sort of discuss everything. So the characters in the story are wonderfully drawn, especially Uncle Matthew. He's called Far by his children. And he seems sort of completely terrifying, but he's also a big pussycat underneath. Yes, yeah, softy, really. Yeah. And he has an uxorious devotion to his wife, to Aunt Sadie. Mm. He fought in the Great War. He's only got one lung. He's been a decorated war hero. And like a lot of men who return from that war, he hates all Europeans. And he calls them appalling names. And he calls people that he doesn't like, you know, that damned sewer. Yes. (laughs) He does an annual child hunt, not a fox hunt, but he hunts the children which absolutely terrifies and delights them in equal measure. <laughs> and I, I found out that a sewer isn't sewer as in the sewers. Okay. Sewer is comes from the Tamil word for pig, sewer, <laughs> sewer. So... So that's where it comes from because he was he was in India for a while and, yeah, that's, that's where the, the word sewer comes from. Oh, yeah. my gosh. He is hilarious. And, of course, the neighbours just cannot believe it. I'll just read a little excerpt. It says, My Uncle Matthew had four magnificent bloodhounds with which he used to hunt his children. (laughs) Two of us would go off with a good start to lay the trail and Uncle Matthew and the rest would follow the hounds on horseback. It was great fun. Once he came to my home and hunted Linda and me over Shenley Common. This caused the most tremendous stir locally. The Kentish weekenders on their way to church were appalled by the sight of four great hounds in full cry after two little girls. My <laughs> uncle seemed to them like a wicked lord of fiction and I became more than ever surrounded with an aura of madness, badness and dangerousness for their children to know. Oh, it's divine. Isn't that gorgeous? It, it's, and based on fact, yes. apparently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all, yeah, David Mitford used to used Absolutely. to do this. Yeah, so he he's fantastic, and my favourite character in this book, although Far is a is a I real favourite. I know what you're going to say. You do, Uncle Davy. Mm. So he becomes Fanny's putative stepfather. He mm. marries the aunt that's raising Fanny, and he's also an honourable. He's the son of a baron, and he is a hypochondriac oh. with an obsession about his health. It's brilliant. His isn't it? body, his diet. He's obsessed yeah. about all of it, and he speaks on the phone to his London doctor every single day. <laughs> it's a wonderfully drawn character, and he's baby. always trying the the latest dietary fads, mm. and he's completely obsessed about his glands. <laughs> And his digestion. And the, I found out a new word, Lou. He's a valetudinarian. Oh, I love it. Yep. What on earth does that mean? Someone who's obsessed with their health and their body. Valetudinarian. I love it. So he's hilarious. I think he, we've got a few valetudinarians yeah, that we a know. Lot, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of them around. We should use that. That word could come we into should. use a lot. So the story follows Linda's coming out balls, her romantic life and her marriage. And there is a fair bit of drama, mm. but I won't say Mm. Um, more than that about Mm. the plot because I don't want to spoil it. Nancy Mitford's writing is, to me, it's like crystal. Mm. It's so beautiful. It's clear and it's elegant, but it's very unfussy. Mm. The characters are unique 
And the best way I can describe this book is laugh, 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 cry. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And the ending really hits you in the heart. it does. It does. So, Yeah. yeah, I love that one. Yeah. Well, I've read the book that she wrote in parallel to The Pursuit of Love, which is Love in a Cold Climate, published in 1949, four years after the book you've mentioned, Pursuit of Love. And I say it's written in parallel because it's really a subplot. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't follow on. It's sort of It's happening at the same time, Mm. isn't it, really? It's just this sort of little subplot. Again, written from Fanny's perspective. Uh, And so many of the same characters appear. So, you know, you do have glimpses of Uncle Matthew and Aunt Sadie and the Radlett sisters. And thankfully, we do get a lot more of her health-obsessed uncle, Davy Warbeck. <laughs> <laughs> so Love in a Cold Climate is written in two parts. The first introduces us to the Montdor family, Lord and Lady Sonia Montdor. Lord Montdor is a respected peer, and he's not a major character in the book, whereas Lady Montdor looms very large, doesn't she? Yeah, she sure does. She's pretty awful. She's a shocker. She's a dreadful She's based snob. on Nancy's mother-in-law. Yes, I, I read that as well. I love that. People either love or hate because and many people are, of afra- are afraid of Lady Montdor, but others love her having her around yeah. because she's so opinionated and outspoken. And she's a complete narcissist. Yeah, and she and she <laughs> she notices these, and, and this is uh, some of the joy of Nancy's writing because Lady Montdor sort of notices all these small things about everybody and comments on them. And and yeah. Nancy's great with detail. She really is. So the first twenty years of the Montdor's married life is blighted by the fact that they don't have a child. Obviously, Lord Montdor wants an heir, a male heir, uh, and Lady Montdor because she can't bear to fail at anything, including <laughs> having children. But eventually, to their relief, a daughter, Polly, comes along uh, and she's the object particularly of Lady Montdor's obsession. Of course, being a girl, she will inherit plenty, but she won't inherit the estate of yes, Hampton. Yes, And the estate is going to be inherited by Montdor's distant heir, who they think is in Nova Scotia. <laughs> So growing up, Fanny is considered a suitable playmate or companion for Polly, whereas other children, such as the rebellious Linda Radlett, who has very bad table manners and is extremely (laughs) outspoken, she's far less welcome. But when Polly is 13, um, Lord Montdor becomes the Viceroy of India and so Polly disappears from Fanny's life until the beginning of this book, which is five years later. The Montdors have returned to England and Fanny is summoned to Hampton uh, for a party and to stay with Polly as her companion for a month. Yes, and Hampton is... An enormous, yes, enormous grand, grand, house. grand estate. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's sort of aristocracy on a whole new level yeah, to yeah. Alkenley, isn't Massive, it? Really? Yeah. yeah. So Fanny's uncle Davy is not especially pleased with the prospect of Fanny going, and he issues several warnings um, about the pitfalls of mixing with high society at Hampton. But of course, he doesn't stop her. And, and I actually think you know you, you've touched on Davy. I think the role of Davy Warbeck is quite interesting in these books yeah. because you know obviously we laugh about his obsession with health, but as a character. His wife, Emily, is content to stay at home with her pets and her own yes. sort of business, whereas he's pretty well connected, son of a baron, as you mentioned. Yes. He goes out and he engages with quite a wide yes, range of people. Yes, he's in the world, He's in the world, which Emily exactly. is not. Yeah. yeah, and so he then comes back with his sort of reports and observations yeah. of others. So He's more useful, really, to a growing family of young children. He absolutely is. But yeah. also Nancy is partly based, Fanny, on herself. But I think also yeah. Davy is a bit of Nancy as well yeah. because he goes out and makes these observations. Yeah. And it's a lovely quote. And he's here. not as reactionary. 
No, absolutely. And here is is a little quote that Fanny says about her uncle. Uncle Davy was my one contact with the world, not the world of bread and butter misses, but the great wicked world itself. Both my aunts had renounced it in an early age, so for them its existence had no reality. Davy, however, had a modified liking for it and often made little bachelor excursions into it from which he would return with a bag of interesting anecdotes. Oh, yes. yes. That just captures perfect. it beautifully. It does, doesn't it? Yes. So Davy knows, of course, that uh, one of the other guests at Montdor will be Boy Dugdale. <laughs> who is just the most odious character, isn't he? So Boy Dugdale is married to Lady Patricia Dugdale, who is Lord Montdor's sister. And, of course, Boy Dugdale is the lecturer, is known as the lecturous lecturer. I'm, I'm, that's a bit of a tongue <laughs> twister. It is Lecturous lecturer. And the Radlett girls have christened him as the lecturous because lecturer. Because of the things he's done, which none of the adults know about in the beginning. No, so he's, he's something of a history enthusiast and he delivers talks at the Women's Institute and basically inappropriately touches anything he can get his hands on. So, you know, he's, he's awful. But we never quite know what he did to Linda on the balcony. No, <laughs> no. On the roof. But, but we just know that it he, just, you just, yeah, the mind yeah, boggles. Yes. And in Love in a Cold Climate, you know, he is Lady Montdor's closest companion. Um, so Lord Montdor's off preoccupied with the affairs of men and Lady Montdor and Boy Dugdale are inseparable. And we suspect that Lady Montdor is probably a little bit in love with him. So the party that Fanny attends is part of the season of Polly's debut into English society and it sort of continues in a typically glittering fashion. That word glittering yeah. comes up quite a lot, as does sparkling. Yeah. Polly is physically very beautiful, which is significant in, in this era, of course. Sadly, probably just as significant today, unfortunately. I'm yeah. um, not sure that much has changed. But it's particularly significant because Lady Sonia has enormous expectations for Polly. She secretly hopes that Polly will make a huge splash in her season. And, in fact, it's rumoured that she's grooming Polly to become a possible match for the Prince of Wales. Yes, and her real name is Leopoldina. That's right. And there's jokes yeah. about what it would be like up at the altar. I, I Leopoldina, take the Henry Arthur Philip Mountbatten. <laughs> Albert George. Yes, brilliant. <laughs> um, but it turns out that Polly could not be less interested. She's hostile to her mother's ambitions and she makes no effort to be gay and sparkling <laughs> as is required of young ladies of her class. She won't uh, engage in conversation at dinner parties and she recuses herself whenever she can and so society starts to twitter not literally but yeah you know that it would appear for all her beauty that possibly Polly Hampton is rather dull company uh, and of course this makes her an enormous disappointment to her mother but of course there's a lot more going on behind the scenes and Polly yes. has a secret which I'm not going to spoil yeah. there's a death in the family and that is sort of the catalyst for the House of Hampton to completely falter. Yes. And the Montdors are blindsided with a scandal. Yes. yes. So then in the second part of the book, we also meet the heir to the Hampton estate, who's very flamboyant and colourful. And he is this nephew from Nova Scotia, Cedric, who it turns out has been living in France largely on his wits and charm, yes. relying on the generosity of friends and lovers who just appear to be bulldozed by Cedric yeah. and his energy for life. So he's something of a fraud, isn't he? Really? Yes. But he dazzles the Montdors uh, and sort of showers them with warmth and affection and he perfectly reads Lady Montdor. Yeah, he's he? so clever. He knows exactly how to play the game and so... 
you know, she becomes his conduit to London society and she's completely oblivious to the fact that he's gay. (laughs) It's brilliant. It's just brilliant. Anyway, that's not the end of the drama. I'm going to leave the story there. I guess the last thing I wanted to sort of say is, you know, for all the clever and sort of funny and sharp satire of upper-class society and their obsession with all things facile and superficial, there's always a sting in Nancy's books. You know, she really does reveal the less dazzling part of society, doesn't she? And she's very honest. And I think she's very brave to have done that in that time, wasn't she really? I mean, you know, particularly as a woman, a female writer. yeah. And she probably got away with it because of her station in life, do you think? Possibly. And also I think because she was very much out of the world, they lived such a sheltered existence that I think they all had a belief that they could do anything. And That's interesting. Yeah. So almost like an arrogance that she could write about these things. They didn't really know what the barriers were out there and they just went and did things, didn't they? They just suited themselves. She didn't really care what people thought. No. Yeah, no, fascinating. Quite a different um, set of parameters from the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to speak about the third one, which is also a real favourite, mind you. I think they're all favourites, but Don't Tell Alfred is the third in the series. There's another one called The Blessing, which is written third, but it isn't a direct part of this series. Um, So I won't mention that one today. That's also a really good story. But I really love this one, Don't Mm, Tell Alfred. I love it too. So Fanny's now been married for quite a long time. She has four sons, two of whom are adults. And her husband, Alfred, who's been an Oxford don, is suddenly and very unexpectedly appointed ambassador to France. So this book is set in the British Embassy in Paris. I mean, what's not to love? I Googled it and it's this, it's, you know, right in the centre of Paris, most beautiful embassy you can imagine with this massive courtyard. And you're so happy that she's fallen on her feet. Yes, so so happy happy that Fanny has good luck in life. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a beautiful residence that once belonged to Napoleon's sister. So it's filled with all, they they bought Mm. it lock, stock and barrel from, is it Pamela Borghese? I think I can't quite remember her name. So all of the furnishings and the vases and everything came from Napoleon's sister. So it's beautifully decorated. And Fanny and Alfred move in and they appoint some staff to help them in the job. And a few days after they've settled in, Fanny gets a sense that something's not quite right She feels she's not being told something. She can hear music at night and she can hear laughter nearby. And there there seem to be people coming and going (laughs) from the courtyard, but she doesn't know who they are. And then eventually she discovers that the previous ambassador's wife, Lady Leone, is refusing to move out (laughs) of the entresol. And she's dug herself in, and the entresol is this flat, which is a sort of halfway between two floors, and it's got its own entrance to the courtyard. And there's this stream of the bright and glamorous visiting at all hours and bringing her food, and basically she's holding court in her bed, pretending to be too ill to leave. And the number of having characters a, having in a her fabulous books that spend time in beds. It's so <laughs> yes, they're all in bed. They're all in bed. And so Fanny's first challenge is to figure out a way to get her mm. out of the entresol, and she brings in Uncle Davy to do that. Yeah. So that's a lovely touch, yeah. and that's quite a lot of fun. And the character of Lady Leone is based on the first Lady Diana. Ah. So it's based on Lady Diana Cooper. Yes. And she was the wife of Duff Cooper, who was the ambassador to France. I'm not sure that Lady Diana Cooper refused to move out at the end of his term, (laughs) but I do know that after he finished being the ambassador, they did continue living in France in Chantilly. 
So there might be a story there. I'm not sure. Who wouldn't want to not yeah, move I know. out? I know. Who wouldn't I want know. to stay? I know. You can imagine easily why she wouldn't want to leave. And then there's a very, an international law problem, which you mm. and I would enjoy, Louise, mm. being Louise, that emerges when there's a set of three islands and they're really just enormous rocks yes. called Les Îles and near Saint-Malo. And at high tide, they're completely submerged. But there are various different treaties. Um, <laughs> or there have been various different treaties over the years governing who owns these rocks. And Such a farce, it's, it's isn't it? blows up and <laughs> it threatens to become this huge international incident, which, of course, Alfred, as the new ambassador, has to steer everybody through. So there's an excellent cast of characters in this novel. There's a really great Sir Humphrey-like man named mm. Philip, and he is fully across French society mm. and politics, and he steers them through their early term in the embassy. And there are lots of, you know, don't tell Alfred, as in the title, going on because Fanny just needs Alfred to continue doing his job, job. and he has to remain a bit oblivious mm. to things that are going on. So the rest of the characters are sort of madly sorting out one minor crisis after another while he just keeps on doing his job. So it's a very funny and charming mm. end to the series. It's not quite as strong as the no, first two that no. we've mentioned, but I would highly recommend yeah, them Yeah, no, I, I love it. Yeah. I love it. I thought it was charming. <laughs> so because I knew that we were going to be discussing uh, Nancy Mitford's books, I thought I would read Take Six Girls by Laura Thompson because it's been sitting on my shelves and... You can't really consider Nancy without becoming fascinated by no. the whole family. And the novels are so taken so much from her personal yes. life that you yes. really do need to read about the system. Yes, and it just makes you want it to does. because you yeah. think, who on earth are mm. these people? So I thought I would do a bit of a thumbnail sketch of the seven siblings yeah, no, because they're idea. all quite fascinating. One thing that Laura Thompson does say in the book, which I thought summed it up beautifully, she says that the myth and the memories and the and the knowledge that we have about the Mitfords is really largely thanks to Nancy's mm. novels. She says, the elements that made up the phenomenon of the Mitford sisters are various, complex and contradictory. But what really counts is the fact that this phenomenon was parceled and wrapped and sold with a beautiful great bow on it by Nancy. Mm. She is the begetter of the Mitfords, mm. which is sort of quite interesting. Mm. So we have Nancy. She's the eldest. She became a writer. She was quite unlucky in love. She became very attached for many, many years to a guy called Hamish St. Something or Other who was gay mm. and she naively hoped that he would marry her mm. and he never did. And the way he ended up breaking off with her was he rang her up and told her that he was marrying someone else. Yes. Which was a lie. He, he wasn't. But it was enough to make her wake up and realise that yes. he was never going to marry mm. her, which is all really quite sad. So she ended up marrying a guy called Peter Rod. Almost on the rebound. Yeah, and he was the son of a lord and very handsome. He was at, he'd been at Balliol at Oxford, very wealthy, very well-connected, fitted into their world beautifully, but I don't think she was ever really in mm. love with him. And he was hopeless. He was hopeless mm. with money. He could never stick at anything and it was never going to be mm. a, a success. So she didn't entirely have a very happy mm. life, I don't mm. think, Nancy. And she could be a bit sharp and a bit barbed, which mm. is what you get with the books. And she had a very big heart. She did love all her family, mm. but there is that yes. little 
prick of yes. a barb with it as well. The younger sisters ne- never said that she was their favourite sister. No, she, I don't think she was anyone's favourite. Yes. And she disliked all of her brothers-in-law, <laughs> which, of course, didn't endear her to any of the sisters, I imagine. No, no. And then she ended up living in Paris and she was very attached to a guy named Gaston Paluski. Mm. Unrequited. But it was also unrequited. Yeah. uh, And he sort of misled her a bit and allowed himself to be the object of her affection. Mm. And then he also married someone else, which is awful. And she died of cancer. I'm trying to remember what year. She died in 1973 Mm. after a four-year battle with cancer. So So at 69, which compared to her sisters was quite young, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. In terms of how long they lived. They varied quite a lot, Mm. though, didn't they? So then there was Pamela. She was the next born. And she was the butt of all the sisters' Mm. jokes and probably the least interesting of all of them, I Mm. think. She married a guy called Derek Jackson and he was a brilliant physicist. And then there was Tom and he was the only son and the heir, which was quite an interesting position to be in, to be the only boy with six very strong-willed sisters Mm. with big personalities. He was extremely good-looking. He was very much loved. I think a lot of hopes and dreams were bestowed upon him. He went to Eton. He became a barrister. But he went to war and he died at the age of 36, only months before the end of World War II. Yeah, because he was actually studying law in Germany, I think, wasn't he? I know he was interested in Germany. I don't know about mm. studying there. I thought he went to Oxford and did mm. it, but he may have done some further study mm. there. He was certainly very interested in Germany, as they mm. all were. Then there's Diana, who was the most beautiful of all of them and regarded by society as the most beautiful. And she married Brian Guinness, who was the heir to the Guinness fortune. And he was really madly in love Mm. with her. And she had two children with him and then fell in love with Sir Oswald Mosley and left Brian Guinness, was divorced and caused a bit of a scandal. And he was a very famous fascist. And because of him, Diana ended up spending time in jail. Mm. She was in Holloway Prison for, I think, three or four years. I think they were both interred in the war, weren't they? And then they were released under house arrest Mm. afterwards. And one of the people who was informing on them was Nancy, Mm. which I don't think Diana knew till much later. I think probably she was more informing on Sir Oswald. Yes. Because she really didn't like him. Mm. But thanks to Nancy, I think that some of Diana's internment can be attributed. Then there was Unity, and she was a bit strange. Even as a young child, she was a bit of a misfit, bit odd. And she became obsessed with Hitler. She met Hitler. There's lots of photographs of her with Hitler. She was very much in the thrall of the rise of the Nazis. She gave jewellery to him. She was quite obsessed with him. And when war broke out, she shot herself in the head and didn't actually successfully commit suicide and had to be brought back to England and looked after by her mother. She had a bullet lodged in the back of her brain. Which they couldn't remove. And she sort of reverted to being quite simple, really quite a tragic story. And she died at the age of 24. So all of her... Nazi sympathising was done at a very young age. Mm. And I make the allowances Mm. for that in the sense that she was sort of barely out of her Mm. teens and so naive, so ludicrously sheltered. 
and became obsessed with this ideal that she really didn't understand, I don't think, what mm. she was doing. No, I agree. And then there's Jessica, and she is portrayed in the novels that Nancy wrote. I think she's Jassy, who's always saving up to run away mm. from home. And Jessica always wanted to get out of that family. She ran away to the Spanish Civil War, didn't tell her family. They had a period of a couple of weeks of not knowing where she'd gone, sitting by the phone, waiting for a phone call to say she had died. And it turned out that she'd run off to the Spanish Civil War with her cousin, Esmond Romilly. And then last of all, there was Deborah, and she was the most equable and well-balanced of them all. I think she was more the glue that kept them all in communication. She was the facilitator amongst all the sisters and very, very beautiful. And she married Andrew Cavendish. So Deborah became the Duchess of Devonshire. So that's really a thumbnail sketch of the seven mm, of them. Mm, no, it's important, I think, to yeah. put them all so in. So you were going to look more at the, the political yes, I am. side, and, and, and you've, which and is fascinating. We've touched on a few things. Um, but, yeah, look, politics became an intrinsic part of their lives. And I think probably the years 30 to 32, those three years, they were sort of pivotal in setting the sisters on their different yeah. courses. So just starting briefly with Jessica, and we mentioned before about Nancy's lack of education. Well, Jessica complained all through her younger years that her parents would not send her to school. And when Unity went to boarding school and was, I believe, expelled and then joined another school, uh, Sydney relented and allowed Jessica, who they called Decca, Decca and Deb went to a small private day school but Jessica, within weeks of arriving, asked Sydney if she could bring some friends home from school. And Sydney was horrified because she thought that this would result in Jessica receiving invitations to other families <sighs> and people they didn't know and people they couldn't associate with. So that was the reason she actually withdrew her from school after a term. And Jessica was devastated. And she said this planted the first seed in her about class. Yeah. And it had never occurred to her before. And at age 13, she then started to read the newspaper at home. She sort of learned that there was a depression on and there were strikes and riots and it was this sort of dawning of self-consciousness for Jessica. Yeah. And in her autobiography, Jessica, uh, it's a lovely little passage, she says, this was my discovery of other people's reality. You discover suffering not just your own suffering because you know it's largely of your own making, nor the childhood suffering of Black Beauty or David Copperfield oh. or Blake's Little Chimney Sweep, but you catch disturbing, vivid glimpses of the real meaning of poverty, hunger and cruelty. So from then on, she started saving pocket money and she would buy these sort of left-leaning books and pamphlets and she became deeply interested in the pacifist cause. Yeah. And then around the same time, and there's a dispute between the two of them as to who influenced whom, Unity, who was three years older, she started to read a bit of fascist literature. Yes. And with a lot of anti-Semitic sentiments. And her father was fairly yeah. anti-Semitic as well. Yeah. And this set her on this sort of opposing ideologies. And there's this... Lovely reference in the Mitford book to the bedroom that Jessica and Unity shared. They drew a chalk line down the <laughs> middle and on Jessica's side it was decorated with hammer and sickles and oh. the pictures of Lennon. And Unity's side, I mean, it sounds awful, was decorated with swastikas and pictures of Hitler. 
It is and, just appalling. Yeah, isn't it? but of course they were children. Yeah, yeah, and it didn't seem serious at the time. No, but of course they it had was, no it became idea. Deeply, no idea what they were getting into. And then of course, you know, Diana, who'd been married to Guinness in 1929, by 1932 she'd sort of fallen in love with Mosley. And I just very briefly a little bit about Mosley. So he actually entered politics when he was 22. Yeah, he's an interesting person. Yeah, and he was a member of parliament for the Conservative Party. He was the youngest member of the Commons, I think. But then within two years, he'd crossed the floor Mm. and he joined the Labour Party. And he actually became the Chancellor of the Labour government, Ramsey's Labour government, I think. And his wife at the time was Simi Curzon, also extremely well-connected family. And she was a young Labour MP as well, very young. But by the time he meets Diana, he's already resigned from the Labour Party in 1932. He's been to Italy and he's met Mussolini. And he launches the British Union of Fascists Party, which, of course, proposes a completely totalitarian concept of government. So... This just coincided with Unity turning 18. Yeah. And so she came out in society and she was totally captivated by Mosley and she referred to him her whole life, short as it was, as the leader. Oh. And she became dedicated to fascism and she became a member of the BUF, the British Union of Fascists. She used to sneak off to the Oxford headquarters of the BUF and she would distribute copies of the black shirt. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And she would wear the black shirt as well, but she had to keep all of this secret from her parents. And then, of course, in 1933, Diana and Unity decide to go to Germany on holiday and they had a German friend. I mean, it's all extraordinary with hindsight, who had actually sheltered Hitler after the 1923 failed putsch and he gave them tickets to the Nuremberg rally where there were, you know, 400,000 people attended. And I think it just had an enormous impact on both of them. And, of course, they went home and were in so much trouble with David and Sydney. (laughs) And I think there's a reference to David referring to those Nazis as a murderous gang of pests. (laughs) But even that indicates that they didn't think it was that serious, referring to them as pests. Yes. And, in fact, to be fair, Nancy also joined the BUF and her husband, Peter Rod, as well. Yes. But it was very half-hearted. And (laughs) they sort of did it to support Diana briefly. Yeah. Um, But they soon retreated to the socialism of their Oxford friends. Yeah. And, of course, as an aside, as we know, Nancy was a lifelong opponent of fascism and it, it appears that she was one of the people yeah. who informed. She opposed Franco in Spain and she went to southern France to assist the Spanish refugees. And in fact, as we know, during the war, she sheltered Jewish refugees mm. in the Mitford family home in London without her parents yeah. knowing. But in 1934... Jessica is going off to the Sorbonne with a cousin in France. So Unity persuades her mother to allow her to return to Germany. And so she is spending her days, it's sort of like celebrity hunting, yeah. desperate to meet Hitler. Yes, she? yeah, going to the restaurants. Yeah, where and she the little osterias and hears, hoping. Waiters yeah. will say, oh, he comes here sometimes. Yeah. And apparently she befriended the guards at the Nazi party headquarters yes. so she could find out his movements. Yep, they would yeah, tell her. I know, it is amazing. Stalking. And so, yeah, she bumps into him, literally bumps into him. Mm. And she's. We, we've not mentioned that Unity was incredibly tall. She was six foot one, I think, mm. is very, very tall, blonde, Aryan-looking woman. And Hitler noticed her in the yeah. cafes. But things began to unravel for Unity, as you've sort of intimated. She actually wrote this very hateful letter about Jewish people, and it was published in That's a right. newspaper yes. in Britain. 
And I think the British press reported her as the girl who adores Hitler and Pia's daughter is a Jew hater. Yeah. And her parents were furious, but Hitler actually rewarded her with this gold a, ba- a medal, or yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right, a badge or and a brooch. And he gave or her. I mean, I find this extraordinary because I've seen lots of footage of the 1936 Olympics and the rousing speeches. She was actually in the box mm, with Hitler. I know. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? And of course, in 1939, Hitler says to Diana, "War is inevitable." Yes. So she returns home, and Unity, of course, decides not to. Yes. And apparently, leading up to the shooting, she went to speak to German official and said, "Am I going to be?" declared an enemy alien in Germany. And they gave her some assurances, but she just literally walked out of that office into a park and shot herself with a revolver that Hitler had given her. Yep. In the park with with people nearby. Yeah, incredible. And that actually brings me to the second book I read, which is a bit of a romp, Wigs on the Green. Not her best work, Nancy. No, no. But (laughs) nevertheless, and, and written in 1935, so 10 years before... The Pursuit of Love, when she's pretty young. Yes, I mean, she's, what, 27 or whatever she is. But it was published in 35 during the height of Unity and Diana's interest in fascism. And so for reasons that will become obvious, Nancy never allowed the book to be republished in her lifetime, did she? Yeah, Because Diana was furious. She was really upset about it. So the book concerns two upper-class cads, young men. Friends might be stretching it, but one is called Jasper Aspect, And he's very smart and unscrupulous and sort of way more charming than his friend Noel Foster, who's more solid and probably a bit duller. Yeah. And Noel works, but he's packed in his job on account of the fact that he's received a small inheritance from an aunt. And he foolishly says to Jasper, well, I'm going to go and search for a rich heiress to marry. And Jasper says, well, there's an heiress in Chalford. (laughs) called Eugenia Malmains and or Malma, and she's reputed to be one such heiress, so maybe you should be interested in her. But the next day, of course, uh, Noel is on the platform waiting to get a train to Chalford and Jasper's there yes. waiting as well. And that's sort of the pattern for the whole book because Jas- Jasper is always one step ahead of Noel, manipulating people and the situations around yes, him. Yes, yes. So the young men arrive in Chalford and the first thing they see is the vision of this very beautiful, tall, unusual Eugenia straight away because she's standing on the village green shouting loudly <laughs> uh, despite the protestations of her nanny. So she's still got a nanny <laughs> accompanying her everywhere and she calls her nanny a filthy pacifist. And Eugenia is calling for people to join her Union Jack shirt movement um, and she's extolling the virtues of her leader, Captain Jack, who is the founder of social unionism and the captain of the Union Jack shirts. So this is it's not even pretending to be veiled. This is yeah, obviously yeah, all yeah. about Eugenia Unity. Yes. <laughs> and Captain Jack is, of course, Mosley. Absolutely. Yeah. So obviously, you know, she's having some fun at her sister's expense. In fact, she describes in the book Eugenia as the largest heiress oh, in Britain. Yes. And it's a reference, of course, to the fact that. Yes, because Unity was a huge. Very tall, yeah. big framed yeah, girl. Yeah. yeah. So Eugenia is dressed rather strangely and she's followed around by her dog who's called the Reichshund. 
God. Apparently it's the name that Bismarck gave his oh dog. Oh, my goodness. It's hilarious. And she recruits Noel and Jasper to the black shirts because, of course, they have to join yes. if they want to yes. have any chance yes. of being. <laughs> they being, want to impress her. Yeah, they have to. But it's still apparent to both of them that she's mad. Yeah. She's completely <laughs> mad. Um, so Eugenia is being raised by her grandparents, whom she refers to as uh, by initials as the Mitford children did as well, yes, of yes. older people. So her grandmother is TPOF, <laughs> which is the poor old female, uh, and TPOM for her grandfather, and that's exactly what the Mitford oh, kids did, I think. And Eugenia's grandmother is despairing because her granddaughter is running around the village, speaking to strangers, looking dishevelled, and she's riding astride her horse rather than side saddle, yes, which, yes. of course, is very unbecoming. So Noel and Jasper are staying at the Jolly Roger, which is an inn in Chalford Town, and they're debating which one of them is, is more suitable a match for Eugenia. But soon there's more ladies in the picture. A Miss Smith and a Miss Jones arrive at the Jolly Roger, and both women are in disguise. One is escaping a fiancé and the other avoiding a philandering husband. Women didn't have a great deal to do, <laughs> did they? No, no. And also Noel meets a Miss Anne-Marie Lace, who turns out to be the local village beauty. Anyway... The story romps on and it turns out that Miss Smith is a cousin of Eugenia and the two of them, Jasper and Miss Smith, are welcomed with open arms by Eugenia's grandmother because she's hoping that they will yield some influence on Eugenia oh, right. while they're trying to find her a suitable husband. Right. And they devise an idea for a village pageant that will be held at Chalford with sort of tableau <laughs> performances from history, which is obviously what rich young people do when they've yes. got nothing else on their yes. hands. They it's a bit of, Jane Austen. Yeah, too, they dress really. up, don't yes. they? And they, they settle that the theme of the pageant will be the reign of Mad King George and Queen Charlotte. But, of course, Lady Chalford is hoping that she will be able to invite some suitable young men for Eugenia to be interested in, whereas Eugenia is seeing the pageant as an excuse for a recruiting <laughs> drive. <laughs> For, for the, the black, black shirts. shirts. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not going to go into any more detail about the story. The climax is really the pageant. <laughs> and the book isn't, of course, the same beautiful prose that you find in yeah. Pursuit of Love or Love in a Cold Climate, but it's biting mm -hmm. and mischievous. And in this book, I think she uses Jasper. You know, he's the rogue, but he notices everything about everyone. He's observing, he's reading the play, he's looking yeah. out for all the angles. And so he becomes this wonderful conduit to work out yeah. everything that's happening. This book is the reason why Nancy and Diana did not speak for 10 years, notwithstanding the fact that there were three chapters in the book dedicated to Captain Jack, <laughs> which were removed because yeah, I they didn't were realize so that. Yeah, negative I knew, about I knew they took it out of publication because of that yeah. and it really only came back relatively recently. Yes. But, uh, yeah, I didn't no, originally, know. The original book had three chapters about Captain Jack, which were obviously I'd love to see about Mosley. Wow. What else have you been diving into lately, Lou? Well, I was just going to mention one other thing, given that we are, you know, having a, a Mitford love-in. Yeah. For those of you, it's very easy to download on your phones or the BBC iPlayer. Yeah, I've got that. Yeah, it's I love fabulous. It. And there's a wonderful series called Great Lives. And Great Lives is where fairly well-known people in Britain nominate somebody who they love and can relate to and they have a discussion about them and it only oh, goes for okay. about 30 minutes and episode or series 29 has an episode on Nancy Mitford oh, and it's, it's beautiful so it's by somebody who's written a book about the Mitfords oh, okay. and then the other one is by somebody who 
you know, is very prominent on Twitter and social media in Britain, and she adores Nancy Mitford. And it's a lovely discussion okay, I'll about definitely. Nancy. And actually in defence of Nancy as well uh, and how brave she was really to yeah, be writing okay. like this at the time. That so sounds that's, great. That's and then the only thing I was going to mention as well is the latest season of Peaky Blinders. Oh, yes. Which is my favourite yeah, television yeah. show. I just love it. So season five is all through the Mosley era. Right, And there's yes. quite a lot about Mosley in it and a, a lot of his involvement with the gangs in Birmingham. And what about you? What have you been diving into? Uh, well, I was just going to mention the Currently Reading podcast because oh, ever yes. since they gave us such a lovely shout-out, I've been literally binge listening to all of their episodes and it's such a great podcast. So I think some of our listeners might enjoy that one too. So there's Meredith who has moved to Austin, Texas, and then Katie who is in New Mexico and they became friends online, I think, mm. through some bookish groups. And they podcast uh, weekly. I do not know how they do it. It's extraordinary. <laughs> I know. It? They read. They're voracious readers. They have a bookish moment of the week at the beginning and then they do a, what they're currently reading segment and then they do a segment of books that they want to press on other people which is books they really love and feel passionate about. Yeah. And they've got some great tips on things like how to read more, for example. And Katie, she reads over well over 200 books a year and she has a really great system with audiobooks, a Kindle and a physical book that she and she has all three going Mm. all the time. And she's got some really interesting insights into how she carries that off and they read YA books and middle grade and crime and I really loved their episode on their favourite books of 2019. Mm. Unfortunately it's added a ton of books to my TBR now because they're so enthusiastic about the ones they really love. So I've now gone back and I'm listening from the very beginning from September 2018. So they started their podcast a year before us and I'm just working my way through listening to every episode. I love it. I'm in awe of them actually. in awe of them out there read yeah yeah it's very impressive so I think that's really worth recommending and then we were going to talk about our middle march read along yes uh, <laughs> which uh Louise and I think we've probably bit off a bit more than we can chew we certainly have but we're persevering it's a whopper it is a whopper oh my it goodness is a whopper. so we've both made a start yeah on it and we're both actually listening to Juliet Stevenson yes. on Audible. Yes. She's really good, isn't she? She's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. She does great accents. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not ashamed to admit that I have I've I've started to read the book. I got a little bit overwhelmed. <laughs> so feel free to admit if you're overwhelmed as well. And so I, I resorted to Juliet over my summer break uh, and now I'm, I'm going to dive back into the book. But rest assured, this is going to be a very gentle... Yes, yes. ..very gentle process. We're not going to be setting any deadlines. It's not or, rigid or... No. So what we've decided we're going to do is we're going to post about how we're progressing with Middlemarch on Mondays from now on on our Instagram page. So do come over and follow us on there at, at Diving In Podcast with some underscores in there. But we'll be doing that with no spoilers. So it'll be just sort of general discussion every Monday on Mm. how we're going. And we've decided that we're going to discuss Middlemarch in two parts. So the first part we'll talk about in the first podcast in early April. Mm. And then the second half we'll discuss in the next podcast that we do, which will be a fortnight later. And then in the third podcast, we're going to discuss In Love with George Eliot, because we've just realised it's quite a mammoth undertaking. And you might 
switch off if all we talk about is middle March <laughs> no. for the next three episodes. <laughs> no, but so we're we'll not going about, to. We're going to talk about lots of other things Yeah, we'll as talk well. about other books lots we're reading well. and it won't be too middle March yeah. heavy. Yes, which is not to say that we're not enjoying it. It's an amazing book. So we do want people it's to a, persevere with it. It's the creation of an incredible world, isn't it? Extraordinary, But it is yeah. heavy and just the sheer size of it is yes. quite yeah. daunting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Hello, divers. <laughs> Do you want me to walk out of the studio? No, it's okay. <laughs> I might not. I don't think I'm going to say uh, that. No, no do. I'm do. Please do. Please I'm, do. I'm, I'm just going to not. Please.